Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven's Rule, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s can rock. In this episode, I speak with Paul Boudreau and Barry Walsh of Halifax, Nova Scotia's Cool Blue Halo. So everybody kind of knows what the uh, Halifax scene was like in the 90s, but uh, what was it like in the late 80s with all that, all those bands who, who would make it famous in the 90s were kind of germinating around? It was always a healthy scene. I mean, Barry and I were obviously in, in our own, in, in separate bands uh, in our youth. Yeah. But, I um, mean, there were, there were a few venues that were kind of open. Um, it was pretty touch and go for a while there because for probably the first part of the 80s, it was kind of like big clubs would have the cover bands and you know, the cover bands would sneak in a few originals. And, and then thanks to the efforts of, of people like Greg Clark and uh, CKDU, the campus radio station, um, these kind of venues would spring up, um, like the Grafton Street Cafe, where a lot of, I'm sure you've probably heard Halifax people talk about that venue before. Um, a lot of the, the bands kind of came up through there. And uh, um, so Paul, I mean, Paul was in, a couple more kind of, I guess, punk-oriented bands. Yeah, you know, a little bit punky. <laughs> yeah, and I was in more of the goth-oriented bands. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you so did it. back up Sarah McLaughlin. That's a that's a good calling card. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's legit. Right. How'd that uh, develop? Uh, well, it was kind of like one of my first serious band, I guess, um, while I was in university, early university. Um, it was a band called The October Game. And uh, it was basically a few friends and um, Sarah came to us via, um, I think one of the guys in the band knew her through high school or something. And uh, she had never really been in a band before. And so we got together, recorded a few things in this place called the Center for Art Tapes, which was kind of an art collective space but they had an eight-track recording studio. And so a lot of people would gravitate towards there and, and record things. Um, sometimes, you know, full records, sometimes demos. And we recorded some stuff there. It started getting played on the campus radio station, CKDU. And I think we played a grand total of maybe three shows or something. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then Sarah, um, the folks from Network, had a band called Move, mm-hmm. which was... Uh, uh, comprised of a couple of the principals of Network, um, and they had come to Halifax, and we had opened for them, and that was what, I think the first time they had really seen Sarah, and and from there I think the trajectory of history changed. Yes. <laughs> so what was she like in those early years? I mean, could you uh, tell that she would become what oh, she yeah. became? Yeah. She was extremely talented. Yeah. I went to high school with Sarah. She was in my year. Uh, oh, we, were, wow. we were uh, pretty pretty good friend, like not, not super tight, but we knew each other quite well, but she was, she, you know, she was classically trained. She was an incredible piano player and guitar player and, and vocalist, you know, when she was 16, hmm. she yep. was, uh, she was a skate punk. <laughs> no <way. laughs> yeah, she totally was. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. No. Yeah. Right from the get go. I mean, you knew that, that there was something going on. And, uh, and as Paul says, I mean, it, it wasn't just singing. It was, you know, piano it was was guitar and um, I think maybe the band gave her 
her first experience of kind of getting out and playing in front of people and um, developing some of the stuff mm-hmm. that you know, she'd wind up using later on in terms of, um, you know, performance and songwriting and, and things yeah. like that, kind of breaking out of the shell a little bit for everybody in the band, actually. <laughs> you know, we were all kind of breaking out of ourselves. So how long after the October game did uh, you two get together then and start playing? Well, Barry was in a band with uh, Allison Outfit, who went on to be in uh, Rebecca West in the 90s in the Halifax scene, called Flags for Everything. Um, and, uh, you know, we would, we would often play the same venues or even the same, uh, the same gigs. I think we were on a couple of the same gigs. At least, you know, there was a lot of benefits back in those days yeah. for uh, various. Usually it was for CKDU. Yeah. But uh, um I think I think it was 1990. Barry, a, a mutual friend of ours, said you guys should write songs together. Hmm. I think it was Pat Dooley, Barry. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think you might be right. And you were at the time. I think you were still going to Concordia in Montreal. Mm. Yeah. We uh, I think once we we knew that when you came home, we we were going to get together and uh, and try and write some songs together. And I, I still remember to this day, in the in, up in my in my bedroom, four four bed four bedroom. Uh, house swap house i guess when you're 20 21 <laughs> years old or whatever uh and i think we banged out like three songs the first time we sat together yep i remember that too yeah, yeah. yeah. it was incredibly incredibly easy and i think we were both kind of bowled away by how easy it was yeah did any of those uh, three songs later on uh, make the record or uh not not kangaroo i think they might have made a few uh, uh demo tapes um that probably never really saw the light of day beyond, uh, mm. you know, on the, on the indie rack at Sam, the record man. Yeah. But, yeah. um, I don't think, I, I mean, there's still a couple I would consider, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, digging up, <laughs> uh, yeah. and, Resuscitating. Uh, and recording someday. Yeah. <laughs> Resuscitating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think actually maybe the germ of, um, or the, one of the pieces of congratulations, came from one of those really early writing sessions. Possibly. Um, Possibly. I, well, I remember my, my recollection of congratulations was I, I woke up and it was in my head. And I, I called you and left a message on your machine and sang yeah. like the verse so that I wouldn't, so that I wouldn't forget it. I said, I, I got this tune and I don't want to forget it. So I, I think I left it on your answering machine. Yeah. But, uh, um, but I know we, we, I think we wrote uh, a tune that we recorded beautifully with Terry Pulliam and I never saw the light of day called it. It's not in your eyes. I think we wrote that that first night. Or you, or you had the germ, and we we finished it off. But yeah, anyway, it was it was a kind of a magical thing. It was just like holy smokes, man! This is really, really easy, and the harmonies came naturally, and that yeah, was it was super super special. Now at that point, you were you're looking for other players to to, to kind of complete the unit, then, or how is the next steps developing from like just writing three songs together to becoming in a band together? Well, we did the busking in the coffee house thing for a bit. I think Barry. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And then it was time to find uh find a rhythm section. <laughs> and uh yeah. we went through a few before the the final lineup that appears on uh, on uh, the Kangaroo record. Um yeah. a, a couple of a uh, couple of drummers and a, and a few bass players, but um, uh, one notably for sure was uh, Cliff who later became Fresh Hermit's drummer. That's correct, yeah. Cliff Gibb. Prior to that, uh, a guy named David Brennan. He was our original drummer who had played on a on a sort of landmark record out of Halifax uh, with uh, James Cowan, a band called The Little Ministers. Hmm. 
And uh, James's history was uh, he was also in Nobody's Heroes, which was a very early uh, punk band in like 1980, 81 in Halifax. Um, and our original bass player, uh, did we nick him from uh, Blackpool? Not Nick, but had he had he played in Blackpool prior to uh, it was Bruce Worrell was the original bass player. Yeah, I think he. I'm pretty sure he was in Blackpool before he was with us. Yeah, not I think he was. Yeah, I think yeah. we we got him after Blackpool. Um, that was the thing I think, I think Chris that. Murphy. I think Chris Murphy took his place in Blackpool. I think as on bass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny because speaking of Chris, I mean he's got all this mapped out, and you've probably heard of this Tyler, but he's got all this mapped out in a giant Halifax band family tree, <laughs> and it's it's painstakingly uh, done, and I don't know how he found found the time to do it, but all of this stuff is charted out, and it's it's quite magnificent if you ever get a chance to see it. Uh, <laughs> everything will become much clearer because <laughs> it was quite, quite an interconnected web and, and it's pretty interconnected yeah. yeah yeah which was good in a lot of ways and that's similar with seattle as well because i mean there's that documentary called hype about yes. the grunge movement and they have that same kind of similar family tree yeah we briefly had a woman uh, on base whose name is melanie rusinak who was uh, one of the original members of what was called tag which became jail huh. So there's a, it's another uh, you know another branch of the tree. It's, it's, it's it does it really does interlock. It's uh, looking back on it now, it's crazy. How long before you would settle on a lineup? We you uh, you mentioned some indie stuff. You had to sound the recommend and things like that. How long um, before you recorded your first uh, your first songs with Cool Blue Halo? I mean, how many lineup changes had you went through? Uh, so let's think, Barry. We had David and Bruce, the original rhythm section, and then uh, Tom Carroll joined the band on bass for. Oh, I don't think it was much more than a year, maybe. Mm-hmm, yeah. And then, and uh, and then Melanie, and, Melanie and Cliff. Yeah. And around and all then, that time, we were always kind of recording with, with Terry Pulliam primarily. Yes. At Santa yeah. Marca. And, um, you know, some tapes we'd, you know, get to CKDU. I think it was probably around the time when when Mel, Melanie and, and Cliff were in the band that I mm-hmm. think we were starting to get some traction i guess in terms of um the campus radio thing because i think maybe prior to that maybe you we were seen as you know too i I don't want to say too poppy but maybe too rootsy or something at the time um Mm -hmm. for what was happening then and then Mm -hmm. i think by the time melanie and cliff joined that would be around 93 93 yeah 93 and so the grunge thing was Kind of full force happening, and you know, I, I I don't think we chased it necessarily, but I think everybody got louder. You know, yeah, everybody got louder. Everybody got louder. I mean, yeah, we were very much in the vein of Canadian uh, college pop rock, really, uh, prior to uh, Nirvana breaking. I think you know we were, we were sort of in the in the zone of uh, of, uh, of a Northern Pikes, Grapes of Wrath kind of vibe, mm. or, and we were certainly heavily influenced by you know bands like Crowded House and Replacements. The, that last Replacements record, All Shook Down, I think was a was a big influence on my early Cool Blue Halo stuff. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, you know when when Nirvana broke, it was uh, yeah, it's very so not chasing it, but everyone just was like. Oh, let's turn it up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. let's let's get heavier. I guess you know. I think a lot of the bands in the area at the time kind of saw a kinship, perhaps, with some of the stuff that was going on in Seattle and some of the stuff that was happening in in the UK. Like I remember, I used to work 
I was a DJ at one of the clubs in town at the time, uh, Club Flamingo. And I remember when Teenage Fan Club had their first appearance on Saturday Night Live. And we basically shut down the recorded music and put on the TVs so that everybody could watch the Teenage Fan Club appearance. (laughs) That's how into it everybody was. And, And so I think that there was definitely influence happening, but also kind of a sense of, wow, these are people who are combining loud guitars with really poppy, hooky melodies, and that's exactly where we're coming from, too. I think a lot of folks in Halifax connected with that sort of idea. And that's right around the time with Go and Get It, then? or Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. I could really hear that heavier exactly. kind of vibe that you're alluding to, because I, I rewatched that video today, actually, this morning. I kind of forgot. I forgot about that time. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> there is a video that that is out there for that.
And who's playing drums and bass in that, uh, in that incarnation? That is Cliff and, and Melanie. Nice. Yeah. Well, I think Melanie wasn't in the video because I was playing no. bass by that time. She had left the band by that point, but she's on the That's right, yeah. Time. Yeah, we went down to a three-piece. Uh, we were a three-piece briefly huh. when Mel left. Uh, Barry, God love him, took the bass on. <laughs> it's funny because I ended up, I ended up playing bass later on. Uh, Jason and I used to swap a bit, but uh, Barry's the it's a real guitar player of the band. But uh, he, he was uh, kind enough to take on bass, and I just kind of slogged out rhythm guitar for I guess it was it was probably less than a year that 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 trio existed, and then yeah. We, uh, and the one time we got to play in New York was when we were as a trio. Yes, we, that's right. We did this thing. It was an event that I don't think exists anymore called the New Music Seminar. Yeah. And uh, kind of like what a North by Northeast or a South by Southwest is, a bunch of bands from around the world converge and, and play and, you know, hope that they're going to get their big deal. But usually doesn't happen. But uh, we had a blast. It was Cliff yeah. and Paul and I, and we went and played uh, – a little club and some friends came out. Legs McNeil was there. Legs was there. Please kill me cool. fame. And we yeah. ran into Joey Ramone in the bathroom and invited him to the <laughs> yeah. show. And he, God love him, he said, yeah, I'll be there. And of course he wasn't. But he didn't come. <laughs> <laughs> but, and we saw Nirvana there. And that was, that yeah, was. We did uh, see Nirvana, yeah. But it was kind of sad because it was the show at the Roseland where he had OD'd earlier in the day. Huh. Yeah, and, and we didn't know. We didn't know we didn't know that, but we were like something's wrong. Like he yeah. was he was, he was starting songs in the wrong key, and he was just he was not. You know, we were shocked because we had obviously seen them live on so many television appearances and things, and it's like this doesn't seem right. Huh. And you know, we found I found out years later after his death that he had actually been resuscitated that morning. Wow, weird. Yeah. So you said you guys only played New York one time in your career. Or? Yeah, just the once. And you guys, you guys being relatively close on the East Coast, uh, how come the only one trip down there? When the record came out, when Kangaroo came out, and when it started getting some traction via, like, much music and via um, radio, um, the whole, I guess, the whole idea was to tour Canada um, yeah. and capitalize on what was happening on campus radio and in some markets what was happening on commercial radio too and you know hook up with other bands that were perhaps bigger like you know Trouble Charger or things like that and do select shows with them so the idea of going in the states never really popped up again hmm. for a while it would have been it was on the it was probably on the horizon you know yeah. uh, but we we never got to that point in our touring career hmm. and i think it was also because it was it's such and it still is such a tremendous hassle to um to go in, in the states um it was always kind of uh <laughs> intrigue a lot of intrigue involved in, in trying to get hmm. in the states if you don't have you know your your union papers or your work visas and, and that sort of thing and you know it's, it's still like that hmm. um so you know we we kind of to a degree, took the path of least resistance, but yeah, still, and we'll be a we never were. <laughs> we were never really able to ink a solid uh, management deal, so and I think that probably as well affected mm -hmm. you know, you know how how we were proceeding as far as touring and, and you know and what we were gonna what we were gonna try and do. If we can dial back just a little bit, we'll get into Kangaroo, of course, but. Um... You mentioned Nirvana and, you know, the early 90s and the grunge movement. Um, 
how important was it to see and you mentioned Chris Murphy as well earlier how important was it when Sloan signed with Geffen for the scene in Halifax oh that's when that's when it really exploded because all of a sudden it was like oh uh, you know a band from here can get a a, a record deal (laughs) you know (laughs) so so it was uh it was eye-opening for everybody, and then of course, you know, people started to move here from all over Canada, and it just capitalized on the popularity of the scene. But yeah, no, it was it was a huge thing. Yeah, because up to that point, everybody was really releasing stuff independently, and you know, through their or through um, smaller indie labels. From say the mid '80s on, um, you know, bands like Jellyfish Babies, um, yeah. another very um, prolific singer-songwriter at the time, Roland Lynn. I remember he had a record out. Hundred Flowers, another local band. Um, you know, they were all kind of straight jackets. They were all releasing stuff independently, but with Sloan and the whole process of how that happened with, you know, kind of the record industry from Toronto uh, converging on Halifax and seeing something that was so of the moment, it, it made them take action. I, I think that kind of made everybody realize, oh, it, as Paul said, oh, it can happen. And and there's stuff here that deserves to be on a world stage. I don't think Halifax and Halifax bands really had a like an inferiority complex or anything like that prior to it. No, I think it's just we're in insulated or and or, and or isolated you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah and so there's probably just a sense of well let's just grow for ourselves and let's just um be our own community yeah and and then when that happened it kind of opened up like a big yeah. wide world i think for everybody you mentioned like bands moving there to become part of the scene um was there any mm-hmm. kind of resentment from people from the scene locally who grew up in it <laughs> from other bands kind of invading their town and trying to get those same uh, clubs to play? Maybe quiet resentment. But <laughs> generally, I think, uh, you know, Maritimers are pretty warm and, and welcoming. But, uh, you know, I think I, I, if there is the come from away thing, you know, it's like, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I think most most of the people who moved here would say they were they were welcomed. Yeah. By, by this, by the local scene, and embraced even, you know, mm. like the Inbreds, for instance, they came from Ontario, and certainly became a real close knit part of the scene. It was the first one, first ones to come to mind. Uh, I mean, the most obvious ones. Mike was, uh, ended up staying here. Yeah. And it's kind of a neat reversal too, because the whole, typically, the whole idea would be that you have to leave Halifax and go to Toronto or or out west, or you know. If you're really super ambitious, go to New York mm-hmm. or LA. Um, and so it was kind of interesting to have that sort of inverse relationship happening where people were looking at the Double Deuce, which was another club in Halifax, as like, mm-hmm. you know, ground zero um, for, what, for what was happening. So, um, and generally the people who did come from other parts of the country came with similar sensibilities, similar musical sensibilities, and perhaps the reason why they came was mm. they felt that they'd feel more at home. Hmm. Um, yeah. 
Halifax doing what they were doing as opposed to, and I can definitely see that, you know, because whenever we go up to Toronto and play, it'd be, be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a different vibe in a big city, you know, there's uh, so many bands, doesn't mean there's more good bands. Yeah, definitely a different vibe. Now, you mentioned that going, you know, out of the province, now that Sloan had made Halifax a destination for a lot of bands, like you said, relocating there and then Sub Pop and all that craziness in Halifax, Dublin next Seattle. Did mm-hmm. you guys feel um, like we looked at differently now that you're from Halifax, like as something extra special or something unique or in the same way the Seattle band would go through Saskatchewan or something and say, oh, from Seattle, you know, mm-hmm. would it become a calling card in a way as well? Yes, it certainly yeah, we're from Halifax, and so oh yeah, cool, you know. Mm. But but I guess the only drawback to that was would be that they would be expecting a certain uh, sound or attitude, which we didn't necessarily reflect. What would I consider? What I would consider to be the Halifax sound. But yeah, it, it, to answer the question, yeah, it, it was it was definitely like a uh, more of a help than a hindrance to be able to say uh, this band's from Halifax. You know, mm. it was easier to get booked. I think. Interesting. Yeah. And I think yeah. it probably helped pave the way to a degree to, for some of the receptivity for Kangaroo and, and the singles off of that. Um, mm-hmm. If, you know, if the Sloan thing hadn't happened and if they hadn't released Smeared and Twice Removed before we got around to putting our record out, um, I don't think the... And particularly, I don't think the Toronto um, kind of hub of the music industry would be as receptive or might have been as receptive to a band from out east. I don't know if that wall would have still been impenetrable hmm. yes, if that hadn't happened. You mentioned getting around to, to putting your record out. Um, I think it came out in 96, and, of course, Sloan signed in 92 originally, and then all those, Eric's Trip and Jail and Hardship Post, all signed with Sub Pop, I think, in between. Um, I'm just curious how you weren't caught up in that wave. Were you guys getting close to releasing a record prior to 96, or why the delay? Good question. (laughs) (laughs) I think part of it was, yeah, and, and part of it was, I think the revolving door of rhythm sections. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a line of changes, and, and you know, I, I dare say we may we weren't as driven, perhaps. Hmm. Like, I mean, we, we were certainly, you know, we were we were in it. We we were serious about it, but yeah, I guess we just, you know, I, I think lineup changes and, and uh, things like that. And once once we solidified the lineup, then it was like, okay, you know. And, and of course, uh, uh, Lawrence and, and Way from No Records kind of corralled us and said, "We're gonna we're gonna get you guys in. We're gonna make a record with you guys." I think so, you know. I think they felt somebody finally needs to get these guys in and make a record because they've got, you know, they've certainly proven that they've got the songs. And going back to the, I guess, the revolving door of, of rhythm sections. I mean, there was a period. I think it was around '94 after. Um, Melanie had left, and after Cliff, you know, God love him, was very apologetic and said, well, guys, I, I think I'm going to yeah. join Fresh Hermit. <laughs> um, after that, I think Paul and I, we had been okay. We've been doing this for a few years now, and yeah. there was a sense of let's just take a little break. 
was a sort of a sort of a hiatus, wasn't there? Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. The last, I, I think, the last thing we had recorded was um, the fifty-two pickup um, yeah. single with Cliff, yeah. um, which I think the video exists on YouTube, directed by Charlie Manuel. Oh yes, that's right. We video for that too. And and at the same time, um, the Sweetie said um, original version was recorded with Terry as well, right. and. Then I, I think kind of once, which to be honest, I mean, 52 pickup, I think we were looking at releasing, but with Sweetie said that was kind of more of a therapy session for me with, with Terry as opposed to an actual recording session, but it wound up getting some attention on CKDU and maybe the fact that people were actually starting to listen to things like 52 pickup and that was getting some play on CKDU and stuff. I think maybe that made Paul and I say, okay, well, let's try one more time. Yeah. And, and uh, perhaps I think too, with the video of the James Parker, uh, brilliant work uh, on the sweetie said video, I guess that kind of sprung us back into uh, thinking it was time. Hmm. And also, and <laughs> Oh, one more thing. And, and also the thing, <laughs> The fact that we were probably seeing other bands um, because uh, I think both Paul and I were working in clubs around town um, and we would see other bands because there are still all these other bands playing. And so I would see a band like what was Spike N, which was what Jason, Jason Ives previous band. Mm-hmm. And I'd go, oh, yeah, the guitar player there kind of got some songs and I would see another band like the Booming Airplanes, which was yeah. Glenn McCullough's hmm. band before Cool Blue Halo, and go, oh yeah, the drummer, he, he looks like he comes from a similar headspace. And yeah. so seeing those things kind of made us, or at least made me feel like um, there could be some like-minded people out there who would really work well with Paul and I. And made us, you know, try again. Thank yeah. goodness. Yeah, I think you're right. I remember. You, yeah, I think you had you had rounded up Glenn and Jason, and then uh, I wouldn't say coaxed me back in, but I, I remember saying, "Okay, well, I'll give this, I'll give this a shot." Huh. And uh, I remember the night we got together in the, the jam space, and it was like, "Oh my god!" Yeah, anyway, <laughs> why weren't why weren't we doing this? Like, yeah, that was a pretty cool moment. Yeah, that's one of those eureka moments. I think. Yeah. Um, you mentioned working the clubs and the vibrant of so many bands coming through. Can you talk about the importance of something like a Two Buck Tuesdays or, uh, you know, like a Peter Rowan and a Greg Clark in the scene? Guys like Peter and Greg were yeah, integral. And without them, probably 95% of what happened wouldn't have happened. Yeah, wow. that's very much true. Much like, like Jesperson in, uh, you know, the Minneapolis scene. That same idea, like it was just somebody that could couldn't keep keep the thing going and keep the you know basically herd cats and get these bands who had no real professional aspirations and and identify them as being worth you know putting into putting on stage. Hmm. So yeah, they they were huge, massive uh, massive part of the whole thing. Yeah, I mean those compilations. It was interesting because I mean. It, Gosh, what was the one from 94, 93, 94? Was that here and now or was that 91, 92? That was 92, yeah. Um, here and now was early, yeah. Yeah. And God Can't Hear was the was the, was the the live one from 
94, I guess. And even within those, you would see the range of bands, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of spectacular in a town or a city of Halifax's size. Yeah. Um, you know, it was it was interesting to see just the breadth of, of stuff that was available. And all of those bands had their followings. All of those bands had their people who would, you know, religiously show up at the Deuce when they do their That's Tuesday. Right. Tuesday. And, um, yeah, I worked at the Double Deuce and there was a band, there was a period of a year and a half where there was a band in there every night. Mm-hmm. And it was, and it was, there was always people there. And so it was really quite something. It's unfathomable today. Like there, there's not a club in this city that has a, a band in a full, full, uh, full venue every night. Especially not in the last year, obviously. But pre-pandemic, you know, yeah, yeah. pre-pandemic, yeah. yeah. But ever since Netflix, yeah, it's all gone downhill. Yeah, that's right. Right. You guys uh, touched on Sweetie said there and uh, making a video for, and now that video got played on much music, and I believe got nominated and was Sookie and Lee's favorite video. Can you talk about yeah. the difficulties for an independent band to get their video played on Much Music? Yeah, I mean, that was the great thing about that time was that um, the director of the video, it was like something that he had done with, um, co-directed with uh, Shannon Duhasky, I believe, and they had done it kind of on their own time uh, while attending school at Ryerson. <laughs> and, you know, there was... The song, as you say, wasn't on a major label. It, Terry Pulliam had basically pressed up a bunch of 45s to mm-hmm. put that and 52 pickup on and to get to get it out in some capacity. But it was after the video, though, right, Barry? The, I think the video came first. Yeah, it could be. It could be. Yeah, the video yeah. was on, was uh, was on before there was ever a, a, something available. Oh wow! Like, yeah. you know, we kind of got yeah. we kinda, <laughs> reverse <laughs> the order wrong. But that was the great thing about that time because the programmers as much at that time were people who were into music. And granted, there was, they still had their commercial concerns and they still had to make sure that there was a certain amount of major label stuff there. But, you know, if you look at that time and people like Sook Yen, people like Chris Ward, um, you know, anybody who was hosting The Wedge or City Limits Simon. before that, Simon, yeah. They're all people who are really into music and they had a say. And if they, you know, when they do their weekly meetings or whatever and something would come in, if they really felt passionately about it, then it would get on. And it was really just a case of um, the director of the video dropping it off. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, they watched everything and they saw that and they went, holy heck, what is that? I mean, I remember... <laughs> After the video had been on for a while, I remember I was starting to get phone calls from like Polygram and all these labels in Toronto. Hmm. And they'd be saying, I don't know what this thing is, but it's interesting. And that was, you know, at that time, thank God for much music, because it was kind of, yes, it was the Canadian version of MTV, but I think there was a little bit more of a um, college radio rawness and experimentation spirit behind it um and it i think it worked in tandem with what was going on at college radio in canada at the time to actually promote independent music and kind of be a lifeline for it and a a champion 
of it across the country. <laughs> Too bad something like that doesn't exist now. I, I'm sure people would point to the internet and YouTube, et cetera, as, as um, ways for people to get their stuff out there. But when you have that sort of central thing that every person of a certain age was watching or was connected to, um, I don't know if that really exists in the current fragmented area that we live in now.
Fielding, uh, fielding calls on major labels after that uh, Sweetie Said video was getting in rotation. Um, what happened with those discussions? I mean, how close did you guys get to signing with one of those majors before going to record Kangaroo as opposed to signing with Away? I don't think we came close beforehand, Barry. Uh, no. I think afterwards we were within inches or closer. Yeah. We were sort of told after the fact how close we were because it was a <laughs> bit of a frenzy because we did manage to get uh, heavy video play from Much Music when we did do the Kathleen video because it was the same director, so there was a connection there, and they put it right into uh, to rotation. So, yeah, we were, we were very, very close uh, to signing. Um, and, and again, I, I mentioned earlier, we, we never managed to ink a management deal, and apparently we were told that's sort of what it came down to then. Huh. They went with one of the other bands that they had in mind, uh, that had, I think there would be a management, you know, a Toronto management firm. So it was, uh, that was the more uh, sensible business choice was like, well, these guys aren't managed by, we, we know these guys are being managed by Fiedler or whatever the company was then. And, uh, yeah. so, so we missed the, we, we, we missed by that much, I think, oh, wow. or sketch mark, just to say. Yeah. And I mean, it, I mean, it's funny because you mentioned the, the too much Kathleen video and stuff. And, and at that point, we actually kind of had it the right way around where we had a recorded product out and it was getting radio play. And then the video came out, you know, a little bit later. Um, so it wasn't still a complete, <laughs> completely seamless strategy, but it was, it was yeah. at least a little bit uh, more on side than what happened. We, we didn't said, have, but. we didn't have distribution though. We, we scored the distribution deal a year later and then had a, yeah. like a sort of re-release. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I, I think part of it too was, I mean, Sweetie said was kind of an anomaly compared to what Kangaroo wound up being. Once mm-hmm. Sweetie said was recorded before Jason and Glenn had joined the picture and before we had actually kind of re-coalesced as a band. And by the time those guys were involved and Jason was bringing his songs in and everybody was working together, that was when the sound that is Kangaroo came out and that is um and and so i think some people probably felt a little bit of a disconnect it wasn't like a whole bunch of it wasn't like i was recording 
or we were recording a my late Valentine record or anything after Sweetie Said came out. It was a you know a Beatlesque pop record, <laughs> um, and thankfully, I mean that kind of garnered its own um, thing, and I think it that became. If Sweetie Said was Cool Blue Halo or people's conception of Cool Blue Halo outside of Halifax for a period of a year or so, I think once Kangaroo came out, that kind of changed everything and made people go, okay, this is what that band sounds like. And thankfully, I think the songs and, and the, the touring that we did and the live performance made people more aware and as Paul said, like kind of after the fact, we started hearing things after, you know, <laughs> after we were kind of, and this is jumping ahead a bit, but, but, you know, after we were kind of like, oh, we're going to, we're going to take a break. We're going to call it quits. That was when we started hearing things. Oh, well, you know, this producer and, and, uh, at Ardent Records, wanted, Ardent Studios wanted you to come in and record where Big Star recorded and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, darn. The guy that wrote the liner notes, I think, for the for the big star, what's his name? Bruce Clark, I think. Oh, Rick Clark, yeah, and he and Rick he, Clark, yeah, he produced that um, the compilation and worked with uh, and still works with um, Jody, I believe. Well, I think he produced some Killjoys records, Rick Clark. Yeah, he produced the Killjoys. Yeah, that's right. Too. So yeah, I mean, within the industry, there was still that thing where you had to have that kind of level of connection be it through a big booking agent or a big management company or something. And the label still wanted to have that sense of security, not so much the sub pops of the world, but you know, the, the BMGs or the universals in those offices in Canada still wanted to have that sense of security that these, this band would be out on the road and this band would be, you know, have a certain machine behind it. What do you think the hurdle was for not securing that management, that booking agent that you needed to take you to the next level? Well, I think, Paul, I think you kind of alluded to it. I mean, we had done a couple of, or maybe one and a half <laughs> across Canada tours. Hmm. And, you know, probably if we had, if we had persisted and if we had, you know, done another one or whatever, hmm. you know, maybe that all would have come around yeah i think you might be right when we because we we released the second single take it back now which also had a, a, another a james parker produced video directed we would have toured in the fall of it was 97 very yeah but we elected to not tour and that was kind of the start of the the, the end, which was not really the end because we're still sort of <laughs> we never really broke up kind of thing. It almost sounds like the replacements. Well, we only just took a break. <laughs> but yeah, we elected to not tour in support of that video. And like like Barry just said, I think had we, I think things maybe would have fallen into place. Interesting. We can dial back a little bit though um, to the recording of Kangaroo and to the writing of the record. Um you guys worked with Lawrence Curry on that record, who I think did Sloan one chord to another. I think he produced a Gen Divers record. Um, what was it like working with him, and how did he elevate the songs once you guys were in the studio? Uh, it was great working with Lawrence Berry. I'm sure you agree. We were friends, uh, so you know that's Halifax for you. <laughs> you know? So it wasn't like we were going in and meeting this 
hotshot producer who actually I think Sloan were working on one quarter or another concurrently while we were. Yeah. I think we were one week on and they were in the next week. We were boring each other's guitars and gear and whatnot. But uh, so, but yeah, Lawrence was a buddy, so it was comfortable right away. And he's he's a he, he really knows his engineering, right? So, so and he and he knew where we were coming from. He knew what we wanted for sounds, and and he knew what our references were. And so it was super, super easy, and very continued to work with Lawrence. So you can probably say more about it on, uh, than I can. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong. Paul, but I think we had first met Lawrence, I think maybe through Terry, because maybe they had, maybe Lawrence had worked with Terry a little bit on some things or maybe come in on a couple of things. And that might be where we first met. And then Lawrence had opened up his own studio. Yeah. Yeah. Um, idea of East recording. Again, I went to high school with him too. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 It's quite the high school, by the way. You, you, Sarah Lawrence. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Epic. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Yeah. Matt Murphy. No, no, I know. Nice. An illustrious alma mater. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. As opposed, I'm from Cole Harbor, so, you know, I got Sidney Crosby in that. I got <laughs> Sid. Respect, yeah. yeah. That's nothing to sneeze at, that's for sure. No. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, so we were buds with Lawrence, and it was really easy. I, I think he, he knew, uh, as far as, like, developing the songs, the songs were pretty much ready to go. Hmm. Uh, I think Lawrence was, was, was key in, in just making them sound you know making them sound good and, and and getting the songs ready to go i mean you guys both being able to handle the microphone can you really talk about working out harmonies and melodies together i mean like on a, like on a track like too much kathleen for example can you uh give us a deep dive into the kind of writing and recording of that song because lyrically i mean structurally everything it's a great song and when i still to this day it holds up you know oh thank you thank um you. that was the newest it was the newest song. It was brand new, eh, Barry? Mm-hmm. We hadn't played it live, I don't think, when we went in. Yeah, it was kind of. <laughs> it was. It was. It was brand new, I think. Yeah, I remember bringing it. I remember bringing it to a rehearsal. I had written it, and there was a little cafe on on um, oh, Spring the, Garden. Spring Garden, yes, Spring Garden Cafe Amadeus, and yeah. um, so I. It is literally a song about somebody who works in a cafe <laughs> no no deep metaphor there um so yeah brought it in to the band and 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 again and this was the great thing about this combination of people instantly it was just boom and i think maybe it's because of our shared musical vocabulary you know shared influences it was just instant and um, same with I think vocal harmonies. Um, Jason and Paul and I could instantly hook up parts, and yeah. you know there wasn't a whole lot of labor, and <laughs> and you know we would kind of stand back afterwards and go, okay, yeah, I think that's it. And, <laughs> and once you brought it to Lawrence, once you brought it to Lawrence, things like I think maybe the slide guitar solo. Um, piano of course because um, piano was something that we didn't have the luxury of having in the rehearsal space or anything um, I think Paul you probably had the idea for the, the piano yeah. um, track so once we got to the studio then it would be uh, the opportunity to flesh everything out <sighs> but there wasn't a whole lot of pre-pro from what I can remember in the pro mm-hmm. in the sense of 
taking the songs apart, dissecting them, putting them on the operating table, breaking out the scalpels. That didn't really happen. So no, uh, no there's no no demo versions of any of those songs huh. exist. Wow. Yeah. Am I way off base here, or is it a play on caffeine? Too much caffeine in your system. <laughs> well, I probably obviously did have too much caffeine in my system at that point of the day when I started <laughs> writing it because I was sitting in that cafe for hours. And, you know, I'm still bewildered why, uh, you know, a coffee company hasn't approached us for their decaffeinated line to, you know. <laughs> Absolutely, man. <laughs> Actually, to, to put the button on uh, too much Kathleen, though, uh, the video, I got to know where three things, if you know where they are, the uh, the red chair, um, the little house, and uh, where's the girl now? Because I've been crushing on her for like 25 years. So. Uh, <laughs> 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 I will ask James about that. I, I, yeah, um, we never yeah. met the girl. Oh, no? Never met yeah, that's right. No, it was shot without us. Yeah, we, I was impressed when I saw the first cut. I was like, wow, who's she? Cool. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, the video was kind of, the red chair was a chair that James had at his place. And uh, so the I think the initial idea was, um, you know, shooting us in front of green screen which is why the background for some of the things is green and uh, maybe um, kind of um, superimposing or imposing some stuff behind us there. And but somewhere along the line, something got thwarted there. I remember the day we were shooting the shots of us in front of the green screen. I had been shaving and I cut my lip just before the video shoot. So there's this <laughs> frantic um, thing with the makeup uh, artist to you know stitch my lip back together and thank god she didn't i think it might have something to do with us having a considerable amount to drink prior to the actual video shoot um because that was kind of what happened when we go into town we go into toronto and visit friends and have a great time and then oh we've got to do a video shoot okay great it probably loosened us up a little bit i know it loosened me up a little bit but then yeah so there was that part of the shoot then I think maybe because we were from Halifax and we had to get back to our jobs and our, and our lives, we couldn't be there for um, chunks of time uh, at any given moment. So it would be very sporadic. Um, we might have, did we have a show around then at that time? I think we might have had a show in town. Uh, the we stuff was, no, I think the stuff that we shot in Toronto, the green screen stuff, we literally drove straight and shot it and drove back home. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, but there was there was almost a year earlier, this is the other thing, this is sort of the saga of Cool Blue Halo. We started shooting that video when the record was originally released in 96. Hmm. And uh, we shot a bunch of footage in Montreal. This James Parker was living there at the time. And it, we just, uh, due to budgetary restraints and whatnot, we had no, we had no money. So it didn't get done until... The following year, we managed to get uh, a factor grant to finish it almost a year later, wasn't there? That's pretty close to a year later. Yeah, yeah, pretty close. So then we went to Toronto and shot the green screen stuff, and mm. James Frankenstein it all together. And, and uh, constructed a kind of story arc involving the uh, the woman and uh, the tiny house, uh, yeah. which was kind of a little replica of the, the bigger kind of house model that we were playing in front of in Montreal a year earlier. So <laughs> it was uh, an interesting process 
But thank God the video wasn't a literal interpretation of <laughs> us sitting in a cafe and us running. Good Lord, you know. Thank God that it, that it wasn't like that. Was there a girl though that uh, you were th- you had in mind when you were writing oh, yeah. these? Oh yeah, there was definitely. A, um, I remember her. Oh yeah, up there. <laughs> <laughs> I remember her. I don't. I don't believe I ever knew what her name was. Um, uh, so yeah. But there, there was definitely somebody that I was crushing on. I think, time. I, I think somebody did go, like, this is small town Halifax. Right? I think somebody, I don't think it was me, but I can't swear that it wasn't. Somebody told her <laughs> that the song was about her. No, yeah. Have you ever heard this song? And of course she said no. <laughs> anyway, that, that, song's about, that song's about you. <laughs> I, think, I, I think it might have been me. Sounds like something I would do. That's <laughs> anyway. Well, that's the first I've heard of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sums it up nicely that she hadn't heard the song. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
once the record was kind of recorded and re- you know you know packaged together i mean what is the kind of plan to work the record i mean being on a smaller independent label i mean are they trying to get chart magazines to do interviews are they you know booking tours with like a treble charger for example i mean what was the kind of plan to work a record without having the big mammoth you know major label behind you that was the, the folks at, at No Records, which was Way Mason's label. And it was a small staff, small skeleton staff, but dedicated. And they had put out a, a few things, or maybe a, a couple things just prior to us or concurrently yeah. with us. But I think our thing might have been one of the first ones to kind of give it, give the label a little bit of a, a national prominence. And then they'd go on working with, you know, shortly afterwards, like things like Len and stuff. And, um, but yeah, it was a small, small team, but again, because there was that level of connection with campus radio way was very dialed in to, uh, CKDU and to, I think national campus radio. Um, so we had support, um, in different regions and, um, it, it would always kind of blow your mind that you'd play in Saskatchewan and the person working at the grocery store who was ringing through your order would know who you were. And a lot of that had to do with the video, but I think it also had to do with, you know, campus radio and and the support the record was getting there. Um, things like Chart Magazine, yeah, you know, hugely important. And again, it, you know, I, I don't mean to sound like Grandpa Simpson lamenting the old days <laughs> um, and, and screaming at clouds, but it, it, you know, it is too bad from my perspective that that kind of infrastructure um, has faded somewhat mm. um, because it was so, so much a part of the connective tissue that kept the idea of a Canadian indie music scene together and vibrant. Um, And there is still a a very vibrant Canadian indie music scene. And again, I'm not in the midst of it now and I'm kind of watching it from a distance. So I'm probably not as aware of the things that have taken the place of like, I mean, Exclaim is still out there and, and, Thank goodness. Um, and there's myriad, I mean, there's there's your podcast and there's myriad things out there. But I think there was a level of cohesion and a level of um, just a national awareness around certain things like a chart magazine or mm-hmm. much music or, you know, The Wedge or things like that. Yeah, it was really, I mean, it was essentially pre-internet, right? So... That's so that's what it was 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 the wedge as you said and, and chart and um, but but like I think you said what was it what was your plan on the phone and they said I think I don't think we had a plan <laughs> like you know, it was just we got to make a record and it, it, and it's going to come out and and that's it you know I don't think we had a plan you know yeah I mean I I think we thought we thought everything would fall into place I think you know. <laughs> Yeah. Um, or, or as it and it did. I shouldn't say that it didn't, but you know, we, you know, we, we didn't really. We just figured, okay, well, so we put out a record and, and we'll have a video and then we'll we'll book a tour and we'll, it'll all uh, all uh, all unfold. 
Now, did you guys go across Canada supporting somebody else, or were you guys taking people with you, or how, how are the gigs kind of coming together? We were just scraped together. Some some cities we supported, and some cities we were just on our own. Hmm. It would, uh, uh, you know, a local band would open. Um, and way, I mean, way would help and be booking um, because he he had the label and he was also uh, managing us and booking the tour, and so with with help and uh, so there would be shows perhaps in the Atlantic provinces where we would be um, playing with other. You know, records artists like uh, there was a band called Mad Hat that we did a lot of shows with. There was a band called Shine Factory we did a lot of shows with. Um, and then once there was a little bit more momentum, and once things like you know Too Much Kathleen started getting played on Q107 in Toronto, we were I think we made it up to like number 15 on their top 30, which you know seeing your name above you two and REM and Tom Petty was kind of mind blowing and still is to an extent. It is really uh, on an indie label with no, no, it was kind of shocking. Yeah. So once that happened, then we started being able to get on bills with like treble charger in Vancouver or, um, you know, I think it was a, we we got on a lot of BMG bands bills because I think BMG were really having a good look at us. So mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah, we ended up playing with a lot of BMG acts. But to a degree, I mean, this is and I'm, I'm applying this label to myself. But this is how naive I think I was, and perhaps we maybe we were as a band at the time. There was, you know, we once we got to a certain level, you know, way would uh, bring some publicists on and um, publicists out of Toronto who were great and who would get us on, you know, at the morning shows and, you know, on radio interviews and stuff. And I remember that we were doing a show at Lee's Palace in Toronto and uh, our publicist had said, okay, I've got us. This was around the time that Too Much Caffeine was getting some national radio play. She said, I got us an interview on, I think it was called The Rock Report. It was this nationally syndicated show that would go across, you know, however many hundreds of radio stations in Canada. And, you know, it was a pretty big deal, but the interview was scheduled to happen around the same time we were supposed to do sound check at Leaf Palace. And we were like, and it might have been me who was like, well, that's around the time of sound check. <laughs> Gotta make sure we're on the sound check. And so we didn't do the interview. Huh. And I think, you know, Way was probably, you know, I'm sure the publicist who I'm still friends with to this day was probably, you know, banging her head on, on, the, on the desk saying, what? Okay, you want to be a sound check? Go for it. And sure enough, sound check was late. <laughs> and of course and, it was. You know, but uh, that's how. <laughs> perhaps if we uh, if we weren't um, left to our own devices as much in that regard, because we were, you know, doing the slogging it out in the van, and we didn't have, you know, Way was back in Halifax, and and um, we probably needed somebody to drag us by the scruff of the neck a little bit and say, no, you're doing the interview, sound check, and wait. <laughs> you guys kind of touched on it earlier, but. Um... You guys took like a 25-year break or so, um, replacement style. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> one of the big questions I had going into the interview was why only the one full length record? Why no follow up to Kangaroo? I mean, Kangaroo is a great piece of work, um, some great songs on it, and then there was nothing else. Um, what was take take us through the kind of what led to the to the big break and how come no follow up? Good question. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's a it'd be a layered uh, answer. You can have a crack at it first, Barry, if you want. <laughs> I mean, um, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I you know I'll put myself squarely at the blame. We were working on new material and oh, yeah. we had <laughs> songs that we were playing live um, that we were getting ready for a follow-up. And, um, you know, kind of the age-old story, well, bands are comprised of people who have their personal lives and their things going on. And for me, at the time, it was, um, I guess, a relationship where my significant other was moving to Toronto uh, to go to school. So I felt, well, you know what, I'm going to go to Toronto too. And I think maybe some of that with me was a little bit of kind of feeling, well, why are we still spinning our wheels, you know, unintended for the slow song or whatever, but <laughs> why are we spinning our wheels um, still on Halifax? Um, I think at that point, maybe, uh, maybe even a couple of the Sloan guys have moved to Toronto or maybe just Andrew, I don't know. But that was kind of always in the back of my head after we had been there a few times and seen the level of concentration of the industry. And I think if there's one thing that I regret, it's the fact that I let myself fall into that a little bit. And that that kind of mindset of well, if we want to make things happen, we have to be here. Hmm. Um, you know, that's well, especially nowadays where people are recording records in their bedrooms and putting them on, on the on the net the next day. It's a ridiculous yeah. notion. I mean, of course, I'm living in Toronto now, and uh, <laughs> and also musically, I think there were a couple things that I wanted to try and do that might have fallen a little bit outside of what Cool Blue Halo was. And my thought was, rather than just doing something on my own and saying, okay, you know what, guys, I'm just going to do this weird stuff on my own and then come back, which would have been a smart thing to do. Um, I think I just kind of said, in a fit of peak, I've got to move to Toronto, be with my girlfriend. And... um, yeah, so unfortunately, I, I mean, Paul, you can you can take it from here, but I think. Um... Well, I guess yeah. I mean, it's 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 interesting hearing just hearing Barry talk about it because it's like it wasn't. It was, there was no animosity. It just was kind of as Barry said, we were kind of spinning our wheels, and it was just uh, uh, we actually fun, funny enough, and a lot of people probably don't even know. Only played a couple shows. We we actually did a couple shows without without uh, Glenn and Jason. You know, we were. Yeah. I'm not sure how that all happened, but, uh, and then, and then Barry just said, well, Kate's going to school in Toronto and I'm, I'm going to go with her. And she's like, Oh, okay. All right. So you know, I mean, I mean, prior to that, there was, for me, there was a, as I said, when we decided to not tour, uh, in support of the take it back now single, 
uh, I can say personally, I thought, okay, well, I don't, are we all in or not? Like, cause we've got it. We had a little bit of touring money. And so for me, I was like, okay, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. If, uh, if, if uh, half the guys don't want to tour in support of the second single. What were some of the reasons that uh, they didn't want to support the, uh, to go on tour for that second single? Uh, I don't know. Fatigue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, Barry. Uh, I think that's definitely part of it. I mean, you know, touring as an indie band is, as you've it's heard pretty in measurable times, Tyler, it, it's very yeah. taxing. And mm-hmm. um, I think especially when you're in relationships, it's, yeah. um, it's, we were a little older too, you know, than, than the average, I think, artists at that time. We were, you know, we were in, into our late twenties, which I know is not old, but it, 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 it I guess, old for, uh, uh, you know, touring in the ice. We used to say the peanut butter sandwich uh, budget. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. In the back of in a, in a sweaty van. So I think I think there was. That element of like, I don't think I want to crawl into the van and do this uh, again, this, like like this. But the irony being, we actually did have some uh, factor touring money, so it might not have been too bad. <laughs> but it was that was the decision. It was a you know, the, it came to a vote, and you know, the, the vote was that we weren't going to tour. And uh, yeah, so and then and yeah, it's very moved away. And I think you moved back for a bit too, Barry. And yeah, and when I moved back, I think at that point. I had reached out to you um, and said, well, do we want to kind of reactivate? Um, And that's when we brought in um, a couple of other folks, uh, David David and Julian Julian Marantet, um, and and played a few shows. Yeah, we gave it a spin. Yeah. I often think that, I mean, if we had kind of gone into the studio right after maybe our the last time we were in the van together as a band, if we'd gone directly into the studio and started workshopping material, yeah. Yeah. I think we probably would have stuck it out for a little bit longer yeah. because at least then that would have been the creative aspect coming back. I think mm-hmm. we were all a little bit tired of the drudgery of, and, you know, not that we did it a whole lot, not that we did no. not, that we went on 10 cross Canada tours, like some of those road warrior indie bands out there. We were relatively uh, nascent in that regard. But um, if we had gone back into the studio and just started workshopping stuff and, and cultivated that creative aspect, I think that would have led to at least a second record um, yeah. by 98 or so. I think you're, you know, the, 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 uh, the follies of youth, too. You know, I think just the, the business aspect of it, we kind of forgot about the music for a bit, you know? Yeah. We were like, oh, we're we going to get signed. Are we going to? Are we going to get a management deal? Are we going to? When are we going to make the next record? You know, who's? Uh, I, I think the business aspect of it kind of we, we forgot that. Oh man, we, what we really do is is write good songs and and play nice, uh, play well together. You know, mm-hmm. I think I think that I think we got that got lost in the maelstrom of uh, you know the business yeah. for a bit for fifteen years. <laughs> <laughs> And then we got back together and we got in the rehearsal space that night and, we're like, and we started playing the songs and we we're like, holy shit, holy smokes, we're, we're a pretty fucking good band. I, <laughs> if, I dare say better when we got back together because everyone had that many more years of playing under their belts, at least 
I did for sure. And Barry, you know, and, and I think Jason Glenn, I thought I loved him. He hadn't played in years, but he was better yeah. than he was. Wow. So in a non pandemic world, would we, uh, you guys be recording new material and releasing it at least uh, through Spotify or Bandcamp or something? Or? We hope so. I mean, we've actually, um, he, so as you say, it's, it's, I guess it's been like 25 years since Kangaroo and, uh, we reissued Kangaroo in 2017 through a label called DW records in Toronto and got a vinyl release and, and it's on all the platforms and everything. And we played twice in, I guess, twice in 18 years or something, both the festivals, uh, Halifax Pop Explosion and for Mike's Festival, the Huff Festival. And the second time out, we decided, um, well, let's try to write some new material instead of the first time we, we had played in like 14 years, we did the Halifax Pop Explosion and we played Kangaroo front to back. We were on the bill with Super Friends and Hip Club Groove and Straight Jacket. So it was like, I'm not going to say nostalgia night in Halifax, but it was it was kind of like it was an anniversary edition for the Pop Explosion. So I think mm -hmm. they felt that it would be a really cool thing to bring mm -hmm. together fans from yeah. who had played before. And it was a total, complete, utter blast. It was probably like the this, the best time I've had playing mm -hmm. um, in my life. Wow. Yeah, it was super fun. And when we were asked to do it again a few years later, we said, well, let's try to put some new material in so we're not just, you know, recording or kind of going over the old stuff. And we got into a rehearsal space and each of us, uh, Jason, Paul and I, had a new song to bring in. And actually the one I brought in was one that we had been workshopping like before we broke up all those years ago. Yeah. So, um, and again, those songs fell together very easily and quite well. And um, I think those exist on, on YouTube as well. But we also kind of took advantage of the pandemic thing to, because as you say, Tyler, if it, it if the world had been trucking along normally, we would have probably made the effort to, you know, um, go into a studio when we were all in Halifax, try to be in, we were making plans towards that. Hmm. Um, and then when everything happened, um, I discovered this silly, well, I'm not going to say silly because it's, it's actually quite a good app. Um, it's not a bad app, yeah. Yeah, called Acapella, where you could record your own track and um, send it to everybody and they could contribute their tracks. So, hmm. um, And then in the end, you stitch it all together and you have a... Uh, a little video with them recording of the song. Um, and so that's kind of what we've been doing to demo a few things. And so depending on what happens, you know, in, in 2021 and, and going forward, the aim I think is still for us to try to do something and, yeah. and get something out. Um, it's funny. I mean, I, we still hear from people um, around the world. Um, who had kangaroo and, and were interested in hearing something new. So that's nice because, you know, you kind of get the sense that you're not going to release something into a vacuum, that there are going to be some people out there who are interested in hearing it. And as I say, I mean, the writing process seems to be still incredibly easy, depending on who's bringing the song in. 
um, once they bring that germ of the song in, everybody feeds off of it and contributes wonderfully. And that hasn't changed. And, and so I think we're all anxiously awaiting for an opportunity to make it make it happen again with some capacity. Two albums in 30 years, that's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we'll wrap this up soon, but um, independently of uh, Cool Blue Halo, have you guys, I know Barry's released Mammoth Gardens material, have you guys released other stuff that people can listen to? I haven't released any of my own material. I, I worked with Dave Marsh on his two records, uh, and I did a little bit of uh, production and playing with a, a, a guy named Tim Hoare, who made a record under the name uh, The Jack Willows a couple of years ago. And I, yeah, you, you mentioned Mammoth Garden, so there's one EP there, and I'm currently working with Lawrence um, and James. Uh, on new music for a new Mammoth Garden CP that hopefully will be out this year. And between Cool Blue Halo and that, I had done a band called Galore um, with a number, again, of Halifax expats and, and Toronto folks as well. And we released two records, um, or no, three, two and a half, <laughs> an EP and, and two full-length albums. That, and all that stuff is available on um, Spotify and Apple and the uh, so, you know, the more you play it, the closer I have a chance of getting one cent. <laughs> Is there a track from uh, Galore or Mammoth Gardens that's uh, something reflective of your post-Cool Blue career? The Mammoth Gardens first EP had kind of a very acoustic, R.E.M.S. sort of vibe to it, and the new stuff is completely different. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one of the Mammoth Gardens songs came from a session that was done with a couple of guys in Galore in New York City with uh, Richard Lloyd, who was television's guitar player, and he huh. went on to play with Matthew Sweet and stuff, and we recorded some stuff with him. And that's a little bit more glam popish, but maybe, yeah, maybe go with Arizona. That's a little bit more, uh, perhaps more reflective of what things might sound like on the new Cool Halo record in terms of my contributions, too.
playlist on Spotify and Apple of all 90s quote-unquote can rock. So I'm asking all the guests to contribute uh, two singles and one deep cut. So how would you like Cool Blue Halo to be represented on the playlist? Barry, we decided the, obviously, I guess the two singles, right? Is that what we're going to go with, right? The Too Much Gasoline and Take It Back Now? Sure, sure. I mean, I uh, Unless so. you want to... Yeah, maybe we, I mean, maybe we should get Jay in there, too. Um, yeah. So I mean, you can either you can either ax. Although I suppose we talked a lot about too much caffeine, so people might want to hear that one. <laughs> but um, my kids love the song "Sparkomatic" on their record. In fact, they like it more than any of the songs that I wrote, which is kind of <laughs> a bone of contention. Um, so uh, maybe go with that. But we can put "Sparkomatic." Yeah. yeah. But the deep cut um, is one of Paul's, and. Uh, you might want to talk about that one, Paul. Oh, uh, it's called 3 a.m., mm, I guess. Nice uh, I wouldn't. I, I, I was, when, it, when you mentioned deep cuts, I'm like, well, I don't think there's really deep cuts on the record, but I guess because that one is, uh, uh, I guess you could say it's a ballad, and it's a little, uh, we took a slightly different approach uh, recording-wise. There's, uh, you know, acoustic, heavy acoustic, obviously you can hear. And uh, I don't think there's any harmonies in the vocals single tracks so yeah anyway it's a different approach so that, that one sort of stands out a little bit so that could be the deep cut so the, the final three is sparkomatic 3am and too much kathleen let's go with sparkomatic take it back now 3am oh, everybody, everybody knows right. too much kathleen. <laughs> yeah i think i think you're right there one of the nicest things i heard somebody say about our stuff was on on youtube somebody left a comment under the take it back now video and said it was the best song that gene clark ever wrote and i'm a huge gene clark fan so <laughs> cool. for somebody to say that really hit me where i live so. nice yeah, one of my favorite songs well uh thank you so much for taking the time today to chat with me about uh you guys time in the 90s man it's been awesome no oh, thank you so much tyler and thanks for thanks for caring <laughs> yeah nice to be remembered you know thank you so much for joining us today on raven drool if you're interested in supporting the podcast you can do so in a variety of ways first you can go to patreon.com slash rave drool become a patron get access to deleted audio get advanced notes of the guests and get a chance to submit questions to those guests for an exclusive patreon q a visit redbubble.com search rave drool and you can buy various goods with the raven drool podcast logo on it Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to this. And if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more 90s camera content, 
Please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself with tracks that I've selected, but as you heard during today's episode, eventually, it'll be curated by the guests themselves. Until next time, friends, take care.